0: Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. In a special edition this week, we're going to give you one of the panels from our state of pot Indie Forum at UNLV. This one has to do with law enforcement and legal issues. We had a stellar panel. So uh, I am uh, thrilled, as I said, at the quality of the panelists we've been able to attract. Uh, for both of these panels. This one uh, we're calling Rules, Regulations, Compliance, and Law Enforcement. And I'll start uh, uh, to my far left, although I don't think that's where he is politically. But, uh, <laughs> well, then, uh, uh Rick Parker's a former U.S. attorney, uh, and uh, he became the U.S. attorney after working his way up in that office, went into private practice in 1991, and, uh, and now he's with Boy Schiller Flexner. In the mid-1990s, he was chief counsel to a select house subcommittee looking at the national security and foreign policy issues. Please welcome Rick Parker, everybody. In the middle there is Melissa Kuiper. She's a former lobbyist and strategist in Colorado. She was in on the ground floor of pot legalization there is one of the reasons we love having her here. She also worked with the auto dealers and trial lawyers in Colorado. If there's anything like here, Melissa, I, 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 you had your work cut out for <laughs> you. She now chairs the Emerging Regulated Industries Practice at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek. Please welcome Melissa, everybody. <clears throat> and Will Michelle is from the same law firm. He works in D.C. He used to work in the Justice Department, where he was a principal assistant in the assistant attorney general. He's testified in Congress many times and once was the chief counsel and parliamentarian for the House Judiciary Committee. He's now a shareholder in the DC office of Brownstein High. Please welcome Will to the panel. (laughs) All right, folks, uh, let's get your take on the question that is on everyone's mind, and and you all have a unique insight uh, into this. People want to know, what Jeff Sessions is thinking, uh, we all know that he hates pot. He essentially has said, I hate, I hate pot. Is he going to crack down on the states that have legalized it? What is the thought process that's going on now uh, in, in the U.S. Attorney's Office? Let me start with you, Rick. What do you think?
1: Well, I, I, for a little historical perspective here, up until the unlikely election of President Trump, the way the Obama administration had handled the discretion that they gave to U.S. Attorney's Office was through uh, the way of this uh, document called the Coal Memorandum. And you're probably, many of you familiar with it because it's scrutinized like it's an ancient text for uh, clues as to uh, uh, how the federal government is going to react. But in the Obama administration, the idea was they knew that they could not change the law with respect to marijuana, that that was a congressional um, exercise that probably was gonna go nowhere. So instead, they created a set of guidelines in the Cole Memorandum that set out these eight different um, criteria by which they would evaluate uh, medical marijuana and legal recreational marijuana in the states and make exceptions. The general policy was we're not gonna prosecute marijuana. We've got a lot of other things to do. But they carved out eight different areas where if the activity in the state touched upon those concerns, then the U.S. Attorney would have the discretion to deviate from the normal policy and actually bring prosecutions against um, uh, those dispensaries or individuals involved in that. Well, needless to say, after the election in 2016, the Cole Memoranda no longer governs that discretion out in the field offices. I'm a member of the National Association of Former U.S. Attorneys, and every uh, couple of years, we have a meeting in Washington, D.C., and we get a special meeting with supposedly the Attorney General. This year, we had the Deputy Attorney General because uh, Attorney General Sessions was elsewhere, and somebody raised that with them in our group, and they were decidedly non-committal about what they're going to do with respect to uh, uh, medical marijuana, uh, recreational marijuana, but they made it very clear that the Ogden memo and and its successor, the Cole memo, that's no longer the rule. Now, I think if if the individual U.S. attorneys still have discretion, I am sure one of the um, biggest things on their mind in a, a jurisdiction like this will be, could you ever really get a conviction with a Nevada jury or a Colorado jury for any crime related to marijuana? And just to be fair to federal prosecutors, it wasn't like, well, I was just Attorney back when George H.W. Bush was in office, so that's a long time ago. Attitudes toward marijuana were not as friendly as today, but even given that, we weren't you know, sending FBI agents and DEA agents out on the street to bus people for hand-to-hand sales or whatever. The focus, and I think where this whole uh, war on drugs reached its climax, was in the late 80s, and especially here in Nevada. Prior to that, we didn't see a whole lot of big-time drug dealing. And then Cuban gangs, primarily in, in cocaine, Mexican gangs with marijuana, and um, uh, a lot of... Um, uh, foreign influences started to bring big-time violence and drug dealing to Nevada and as a result the whole country under the Reagan administration you had the uh, uh, Justice Department crack down and, and created what we called the drug task force which was a specialized unit dedicated funds and everything else so we uh, even the year in Nevada which at that point was a small US Attorney's Office I had when I first signed up as an assistant there were two drug task force attorneys by the time I left running the show, there were seven. So it, it, you know, it always have to keep in context, it was more the violence and the, um, the high level of criminal activity that came with the drugs here that resulted in the investment in the prosecution. And then later after September 11th, they've got more important things to worry about. So I guess if I had to make a guess now, I suspect that um, they're certainly not going to, uh, Maine Justice is certainly not gonna put the um, chains on any of the U.S. attorneys who want to venture into uh, testing some of these um, uh, conflicts between state law and federal law, but I think they'd be very careful about the cases they pick, and I, my guess is that the first salvo will be something like a forfeiture action where you don't have to depend upon a jury, and you can depend upon the federal judges following the federal law. I mean, they could shut down legal marijuana simply by forfeiting all the money that the dispensaries are making and just bringing uh, civil and quasi-criminal uh, actions that way. I think if you see some, it's not going to be uh, the headline grabbing, uh, taking down the dispensary on the street for uh, you know big-time drug dealing.
0: Will, do you agree with that? What do you, what do you think? You're, you're in Washington, you've been inside that office. Uh, what, what's the word? Uh,
2: so I think um, there will be, uh, several large takedowns. Washington Post reported last week that supply in California is outstripping demand fivefold. Where is the excess marijuana going? I think that the Department of Justice is gonna be very focused on diversion cases, particularly diversion cases out of uh, California uh, to the extent they believe that Uh, the regulatory system in a particular state isn't getting the job done, I could see them stepping in. Um, uh, I think, look, a forfeiture case certainly um, uh, is something that they could do. I don't expect that they will go after an otherwise law-abiding business, but there are uh, significant, look, the the, um, Attorneys General of Oklahoma and Nebraska a couple years ago actually sued um, A particular state, Colorado, um, because of their concern about diversion. Um, that case went nowhere in the Supreme Court, but um, you know, the Justice Department is hearing concerns from states that don't have legalized marijuana. So I expect that you know that could happen if, if folks are not following their state rules and regulations. And then you could see the kitchen sink thrown at somebody. Not it, it could be forfeiture, uh, but it could also be you know tax evasion. Um, AML charges, money laundering charge, charges, and the like. So uh, I wouldn't want to be you know, that business, particularly that business in California. But, but I, I mean, how closely are they watching these, these folks who are in
0: business uh, in Nevada, for them to, to kind of piggyback off what you're saying, to slip up, to
2: not follow the regime so they can go after them? Are they watching it closely? Well, I don't think they have a DEA agent casing mm-hmm. every business. Um, but I think they've got, look, Post 9/11, um, uh, federal law enforcement is supposed to understand their domain, and that is true for the FBI. That is true for the DEA. And look, they've they've got some legal businesses, I think, that are uh, that may be pointing the finger at somebody who's not doing the right thing, right? Because it's a competitive disadvantage if you're otherwise following the law, and the person two blocks away isn't. Um, uh, then that may be a, that's a definitely a competitive disadvantage for the, for the legal business. And then, you know, this happens in all kinds of industries, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's happening in this one.
0: Rihanna just told me they all get along swimmingly. They would never narc on each other. They all love each other, right? Isn't that what I heard? Uh, Melissa, let, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about Colorado. And, 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 and what was the thought back then, in terms of when Colorado started, uh, uh, what the federal government might do, how did you handle that?
3: So, you know, when medical first passed in Colorado in 2000, there was no regulatory structure. It passed in the Constitution and everyone basically had possession rights, but there was no regulatory market. Several years later, Obama gets elected and he produces coal memo, uh, or allows DOJ to produce the coal memo. And it became very clear that the state had to do something. So in 2012, we passed the medical regs and the idea was, if you follow the coal memo, then you'll be okay, right? Under that presidential authority, that would be the right move. So those aid enforcement priorities were baked into our legislation, and then a few years later when recreational passed, we did something very similar on the recreational piece and said, look, there's nothing in federal law that we can fix here at the state level, but if we do what we need to do and we pay attention to the coal memo and the FinCEN guidance on the banking piece, then we should be okay. Um, You know, and I think in large part, the state regulatory system still looks that way. You know, we've essentially said, even though Cole Memo has since been rescinded earlier this year, the fact of the matter is we don't want cartels taking the product. We don't want kids getting it. You know, and and continually following that, um, certainly on anti-trafficking and preventing diversion has been the right thing to do regardless of coal. And now we're in a situation, as you've heard, where coal's gone and what does that mean for the long-term stability of the marketplace, and that really is the key question. I will say, from a Jeff Sessions idea perspective, you know, our Senator Cory Gardner, you may have heard of him, he's done a lot of good things for the marijuana industry and continues to do so, uh, including keeping some very key DOJ nominations from proceeding to the floor um, as a, a senatorial discretion. So he's very much working on behalf of you know the state law. I think originally he was opposed to it, Um, But the bottom line is recreational and medical are now in the Constitution in Colorado. And a lot of Republicans in particular who say, well, if I support the Constitution on guns, I have to support it on everything else. And that's the position they've taken, which has been a fascinating one, quite frankly. For those of us that have been in politics, me, for 20 years, hearing Republicans stand up and support marijuana issues when they probably voted no on both measures has been really a fascinating dynamic and one that I think you're going to see continually play out as states continue to legalize.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's more of a Tenth Amendment kind of argument for a lot of these Republicans. That's how they justify it. And you mentioned Gardner. Uh, Gardner has tried to protect what he sees as Colorado's interests, but he has essentially said uh, uh, that Jeff Sessions has this religious fervor uh, about about marijuana. And and so and any of you can jump, jump in on this. Where does that go in terms of how that trickles down to the local U.S. attorney's offices? Does he make a phone call and say, okay, it's go time, today we're we're going, how does that work, or does he he get a signal from the White House? Trump did not say much negative about marijuana, quite the contrary, during the campaign. So whoever wants to jump in on this, go ahead. Where where does that all go, the tension between Sessions and Trump on the issue? What does Sessions do in terms of putting his
2: tentacles out to the the local U.S. attorneys? Uh, Let me just, I'll answer the second part um, of that. Uh, What the current um, group at the Justice Department would tell you is that they would say, look, we really didn't change much. The Cole memo said that uh, being in the marijuana business was a violation of the Controlled Substances Act, and um, uh, you know, in fact, all four of the memos, the Ogden memos, uh, and the rest, all made this statement, um, and then listed kind of the eight priorities. And so they would say, "Look, we are just going back to the status quo ante, which vests in each United States attorney. There are 93 <coughs> of them around the around the country. You have one here for the District of Nevada, uh, four in California." one in Colorado, um, and um, then it's up to that U.S. attorney, in the absence of a federal priority, it's up to that U.S. attorney to set priorities for their district. Now that being said, I think um, it's interesting. I got an email from a very accomplished libertarian lawyer, and he wrote, he wrote me asking, look, was, what, was um, rescinding the Cole memo merely um, uh, symbolic? And my response was, it's only symbolic <laughs> if you thought the Cole Memo was symbolic. If the Cole Memo, um, uh, I think though, it wasn't. If Cole Memo, I think, became a de facto prosecution policy or non-prosecution policy. Um, uh, but the Cole Memo, as the, cur- the current um, uh, group of the Justice Department said, Cole Memo still left every option on the, on the table expressly. Um, and so now, uh, the way it works is the U.S. Attorneys in each district Get to set uh, set priorities for that
0: district. Rick, you wanted to jump in on that. I,
1: I would agree with that. I mean, the one thing that was uh, delightful was the amount of prosecutorial discretion you have in that position. And even though you work technically for the Department of Justice, the only one who can fire you is the President of the United States, and he's a little distracted right now. So I think what you'll see, and we had the same thing way back in. 1990, you'd get the priority of the week, it would be HUD fraud one week, it would be uh, you know, some other federal program <laughs> fraud the next. And as long as you can demonstrate to the Department of Justice that you've dedicated some agents or whatever to the priority of the month, you're fine. And I think in a situation like this, especially in a Republican administration, and, and this is a broad generalization, but I've seen it to be true for the last 30 years, is. Republican administrations give greater discretion to the field. Uh, Ed Meese was famous for just, you know, you tell me what resources you need. So that they may have a national focus, but they're going to trust your knowledge of the individual uh, environment in which you're operating to decide what cases you do. In the Democratic administrations, it was much more the policy gets implemented um, with a greater rigor. So. I think here, Will's exactly right. It, it'll be, uh, you know, the U.S. attorney assessing the situation on the ground and deciding what will fly. And and I think, even with rescinding the Cole memo, as you have said, the, the guidelines are pretty darn good for uh, a state to adopt in the sense of saying, here's how we're being careful about the impact on kids, the you know, minimizing the violence, stopping the uh, the diversion to another state. And as a result, those folks will probably be left alone. Nobody wants a fight that they can't win. And, you know, unless it's an extreme case of coloring outside the lines, I don't know that most U.S. attorneys in states like ours are are going to be enthusiastic about it.
0: Rick, the difference, let me just ask one follow-up question, Melissa, and I want you to jump in. Rick, but the, the difference here now in Nevada is people knew something about you, something about... The U.S. attorneys who who came after you, uh, we know nothing about this new U.S. attorney in Nevada. She was essentially plucked from Texas, and, and and brought to Nevada. I think people are like, who is this person? What 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 might she do? She's not tied to anybody uh, in Nevada. She has no reputation in Nevada. Should people be worried, confused, or how should they feel about that?
1: Well, I, I think. It's not the first time that we've had somebody from outside Nevada for a short stint. We had Doug Frazier after Lee Lutte back in the the 90s, and I think that was kind of a cleanup operation. (laughs) Things were not particularly going well, and somebody from DOJ was sent out. There are some folks who believe that's what's happening here in the Clive and Bundy collapse, and it's really just kind of a, um, you know, bring in a fresh set of eyes to assess the office. Uh, and then I actually heard from somebody in the marijuana business that asked me uh, whether or not they th- I thought this was uh, a signal that they were going to send people from D.C. who would not be afraid to bring these kind of cases. I think that's a little far-fetched. I'm more likely to believe the first scenario that they just, you know, they, we've had some leadership problems in that office lately, and I think it's it's more along those lines. Plus, I think this... Appointment only lasts 120 days under the statute that uh, uh, she was appointed under, so we may have a Nevadan in there before the end of the summer. Melissa, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, no,
3: not at all, so a couple thoughts. You know, Jeff Sessions obviously has the ideology that's anti-marijuana, no one has a surprise by that, but then there's a practical reality of what's he gonna do about it, right? So two thoughts, you know, there's a resources question and there's a can I win this case question. And just last week in the omnibus that passed in Congress were protections for medical marijuana known as Rohrbacher um, that essentially say the DOJ can't use resources to enforce against businesses in legal marijuana states for medical. It does not provide those protections for recreational. There was an effort underway that Will and I were involved in to get it there. And the bottom line is it fell apart at the leadership table between Schumer, Schumer and McConnell. It wasn't a deal that those two were willing to make, um, at least not yet. And we're going to keep working on that. You know, the the second piece of that is, okay, if I do bring this case in a place like Colorado or Nevada or California where there is legal marijuana, can I win it? Can I I bring this test case and then have a jury that will actually convict against a legal marijuana business? And I can tell you there's a significant concern over jury nullification because of that. And nobody wants to go all the way down that road and then lose the case. So those are the practical implications. You know, could Jeff do it? attorney general sessions sure will he there's a whole road of analysis for him there that i think is not exactly an easy one for well, him.
2: and that's why i said i think they're going to start with a significant diversion case right i don't think you're going to find too many people who are going to sit on a jury that says that a business in a who's um, in a legal jurisdiction should be facilitating the transport of uh, marijuana into a jurisdiction that doesn't provide for that Um, So my guess is that's not going to be that much of a roll of the dice with regard to a jury. So so you're all pretty convinced
0: they're just not going to bring a case here fearing that a jury is going to say, listen, they're in business here, they're a legal business, they're not going to do anything, as opposed to people saying, uh, uh, you know, marijuana is a gateway drug. I see it leading to bigger problems. I have a cousin who got hooked on marijuana and then cocaine, and I have a brother. You don't think anything like that is possible. They think
2: they can get it. You're, you're convinced that juries are all pro pot. No, I, well, look, I don't think that you're going to... Even if they they thought all the things that you said, you can't prosecute your way out of what the state, uh, these various states have done. That's why I think... That it's going to be uh, a case that involves, um, uh, tr- you know, from one state to, you know, it's marijuana from California going to Texas or going to New Mexico, something like that.
1: I think another area where it might be fruitful, and I think if I were still in that office and DEA was looking for something to do, I would have them check out the possibility that. The people who are running legal marijuana businesses are really running it, and they're not just a, a front. Because I cannot, just based on the way things happened in the late '80s and and the power of the Mexican drug cartels, that there isn't some sort of pressure that some of these folks are feeling to just, you know, surrender the the flow. And and if we had a case where you could demonstrate that Mexican drug lords were the real forces behind. Uh, local allegedly legal businesses. I think that's something that could turn a jury. But you only need one, two, three jurors to really spoil a case. And um, I think that's why, uh, perhaps, uh, John, you're sensing a sense of skepticism here that we could ever really get that on yeah. if we were prosecutors trying to but do it.
2: When I was in the department, the districts on the southern border would not bring uh, a case unless um uh, the person trafficking the marijuana had more than a 1,000 pounds, right? There's just so much flowing over the southern border. So the Tucson sector, El Paso sector, these were areas where um, uh, we made the arrest, made the deportation, uh, DEA piled it up in a field and burned it, right? There just wasn't, a, there weren't enough prosecutorial resources for those cases. Similarly, there aren't gonna be the kinds of prosecutorial resources Available to go after a business that's otherwise um, complying with state laws and regulations, but if the state but if that business isn't doing those things, um, you know, the, the department could be looking at you
0: are, are any of our sponsors' fronts for the cartels could you tell
2: <laughs> no. don't raise your hand <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah.
0: probably mistake me asking that uh, Melissa, uh, to talk about your interactions in Colorado or people you talked to interacted with the U.S. Attorney there when Colorado was, in, was nascent and, and going through all this. What were the interactions like?
3: Uh, you mean under Obama? Yeah. So we have a little bit of a unique situation, you know, um, when John Walsh was the U.S. Attorney, it was clear that he would follow the guidance under the Cole Memorandum, and that was really kind of the end of the story. Um, We don't have a new U.S. attorney now under the Trump administration. That person has yet to be appointed, so we have a gentleman named Bob Troyer who worked under John Walsh when he was the U.S. attorney, so it was essentially an Obama administration holdover. Um, So that's a very unique thing for a Trump administration with an AG Sessions dynamic to have an Obama uh, U.S. attorney in Colorado, but that's the situation that we're in. There's potentially going to be some conversations between the U.S. attorneys and legal states uh, about doing task forces and rolling out some communication about what the new policies are going to be in light of what the law at least currently is versus what the motivation about enforcing the law may be in terms of marijuana policy. I think we all agree that it's very likely to remain a Schedule I for quite some time, but how the Schedule I issue is applied to states is really the question, and that is what U.S. attorneys are facing. Uh, I know at least in Colorado, U.S. Attorney Troyer is reaching out to local law enforcement to talk about what the enforcement priorities are, because let's face it, when the federal government has a task force, oftentimes they have enforcement uh, participation from local law enforcement officials, and absent that, there's not a whole lot they can do. And that's the conversation that's having, um, I think, some meaningful dialogue as we speak and, and will be ongoing. Um, you know, our interactions are somewhat limited from a lobbying and policy perspective uh, because those lawyers uh, in, the, in the Department of Justice tend to be appropriately tight-lipped about what they're thinking. But from what we can gather, uh, it's a partnership approach as opposed to we're coming in to the shut you down approach.
0: Well, you've had a lot of experience uh, with Congress. Um, Is there a potential short- or
3: long-term congressional solution that you see coming down the pike? I think there's going to have to be, right? I think as more states legalize, you're at 30 for medical, 8 for recreational, several more coming either through legislation or on the ballot this year. And sooner or later, like any other issue, that tipping point will will be reached where Congress finally has to act. Uh, we've all said uh, that we expected banking to be the first thing addressed. Obviously, it hasn't been addressed, and there's a huge public safety argument why it should be um, really, uh, you know, disappointing, quite frankly, that Congress hasn't acted there. But you're going to see some tweaks. 280E was mentioned earlier. 280E is a huge problem. If you want the marijuana industry to pay its taxes, then you should give them the same tax equity that other businesses have. And that's a conversation we've had on Capitol Hill. There's a dialogue about a potential federal excise tax and what that might look like. And that, for all intents and purposes, legalized the industry for a very long time and and permanently. Once you're in the federal tax code, you never really quite get out of it, and that's okay for an industry that's seeking long-term stability. So that's another play. So I think the answer to your question is yes. Could we put a timing on it? No. No lobbyist, right, worth their salt, will ever tell you what the timing will be. But we can tell you from being in these meetings on Capitol Hill, even the most conservative Republican members of the Senate will look you in the eye and say, I know this is going to be legal, but I'm not in a place yet where I can help you with it. And our response to that is, well then just stay out of the way while we're working on policy. And they've been okay with that. So interestingly enough, we have many members that say, just don't tell me to speak publicly on it, but if you can do things around us or around me, then that's okay.
2: So a lot of those senators come from states that haven't legalized yet. And as I look at the landscape, so there's one legislative success this year over the objections of the Justice Department, which was um, the uh, 2,000 plus page omnibus appropriation bill carries the Rohrabacher Amendment again, Um, uh, but there isn't a protection in there for um, uh, states that have legalized recreational. So um, these bills that have been introduced uh, fall into a couple different buckets as I see them. One bucket is kind of study bills. Let's study it for veterans' health. Let's study it for health generally. Let's study the issue and postpone the decision making till some other time. Um, then there are bills that um, deal with particular problems that arise because of the conflict between the Controlled Substances Act and state law. So those would be the bills that Melissa mentioned. They address the tax issue, they address the banking issue. Um, and then there are some bills that actually take the problem on directly. Um, And there are a a couple different ones worth note, uh, but they're either uh, they reschedule, deschedule, or uh, there is a bill that would say that the Controlled Substances Act doesn't apply in states that have a legal uh, regulatory regime. I personally think that one's got the most political viability, why? Because that doesn't force a member of Congress from Alabama to vote, uh, you know, make a decision about pot good or bad, right? It's just I'm going to defer to these other states. The Controlled substances act won't change in my state, and I don't have to. I don't have to make that sort of uh, normative decision, right? Um, I, I'm, you know, we're very hopeful that some of these other problems can get taken care of part of the problem is that you can do this on Capitol Hill, right? You go to the Senate Banking Committee, and they'll say, just go down the hall to the Judiciary Committee, and once they take care of your problem, all these banking problems go away. Or you can go to the Tax Writing Committee, and they'll say the same thing. Go down to that other building, go down the hall, and have the Judiciary Committee fix your problem. So I think, ultimately, uh, it'll th- that'll happen. And then once Um, it's fixed Uh, then there'll be a host of other issues because then you're going to have some form of federal regulation, right? So um, medicine generally is regulated by the FDA in this country and so you could see um, uh, uh, medicinal marijuana being regulated at some point by the FDA and uh, kind of working through a host of issues that that raises, but that's Kind of down the road a bit. But that keeps lobbyists in business, so that's good, right? And lawyers.
0: And lawyers, exactly. Well, I'm waiting for that study <laughs> yeah, to come right. out. That's right. So Rick, this, the, 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 both of both your colleagues here mentioned the banking issue, uh, which is a huge issue. And, and as Melissa pointed out, it, it can be seen as a public safety issue at, at, at some point, right? Well,
1: I, it's one of those aspects of the legal business. This is very similar to the illegal business. And for exactly the reasons they've um, they've indicated, is if you're in a cash-only business, a lot of bad things can happen to your cash between uh, uh, when you get it and when you deposit it, or what you do with it, when you spend it. So, I mean, that's been one of the challenges. I think um, you know everybody tends to think, well, you'll be prosecuted under Title 21, the federal drug laws. Well, no, there's all kinds of money laundering and uh, and violation of banking regulations and. And really, that would be a good place to start in order to try to normalize the business. And, and it, it, it's an area that if you cure that problem, then you can minimize the potential violence attendant to uh, uh, dispensaries, the kind of robberies, the kind of tax evasion, and, and, and other crimes, and, and there wouldn't be a need for prosecution in that area. You mentioned lawyers in this area, too. And we've, we've had this come up with uh, the State Bar I'm the president-elect now, and a couple of years ago, uh, there was a concern about, uh, with legalized marijuana here, whether lawyers could actively participate as owners and managers of these businesses. And it was thrown onto the plate of the Board of Governors. We have 15 members, had 16 different opinions about what was uh, ethical and not ethical. And I drew the short straw to explain it to the Supreme Court that, we don't have, other than adding a sentence in there that lawyers should proceed with caution because this is still against the federal law, there really isn't any guidance as to uh, whether or not you're committing an ethical violation or, or uh, you're putting your bar license at risk by uh, so acting. And I, I think we have a lot of, um, you know, I don't know all the folks who have were, were given the initial slew of licenses, but there's a number of prominent attorneys in there. and. Uh, you know, the, the only guidance the bar and the Supreme Court really gave them was proceed with caution because it is against the federal law. And um, it, 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 when we were studying how to handle it, the Gaming Control Board basically said, no, you can't have a gaming license and also be invested in a uh, medical marijuana uh, company as well. And I think uh, some of the other licensing boards made similar decisions. Others went the other way. Uh, so that, that's an area of... Um, potential risk for uh, Certainly attorneys and, and maybe other professionals. I want to talk
0: well. about the gaming part of it in a second Rick But I don't even know I remember when that happened with the with the Supreme Court and, and the State Bar proceed with caution What does that even mean well,
1: but that's <laughs> the we operate by if, if I can get eight votes for a position <laughs> that becomes our, our position, but I, I think what it means is that uh, you know, the, the Board of Governors is, is multi-generational as well. We've got some youngsters, then we've got older folks like me, and everybody's got a different take on, you know. And we had some folks that said, well, it's perfectly fine if, uh, you know, the citizens of Nevada want to buy, sell, and use marijuana, but lawyers should hold themselves higher because they have to fi- follow the federal law as well as the state law. And then you'd have others who say, This is Nevada, and the federal government has no business telling us what to do. And John knows this is is what you have in a group of people. And, you know, it was kind of an odd position to have to argue, but it's like, here's where we are, justices. Uh, We all sat around the table, and we can't agree on specifically how the bar or the Supreme Court should treat these
2: investments. Before you jump to gaming, can I say one thing about banking? Of course. Yeah. So a year or two after the issuance of the coal memo, um, uh, the Department of Justice issued a memorandum with regard to prosecution of financial crimes uh, relating to uh, marijuana. On the same day, and they were coordinated, the um, FinCEN, which is the center within the Treasury Department that tracks all of the uh, uh, gets currency transaction reports, suspicious transaction reports, it's all the anti-money laundering work, issued guidance uh, with regard to how to bank. It basically said marijuana is illegal under federal law, but if you're going to bank it, this is the, these are the things that you ought to do to stay compliant. That guidance has not been rescinded. And what I've gathered is that the rescission of the four justice memos was not coordinated with Treasury Um, and I've talked to uh, some folks at FinCEN and uh, they'll tell you two things. Uh, We are studying the issue and we have no immediate plans to make any changes. And, And the reason is, you know, their mission is to stop money laundering. And to stop money laundering, you want people to be banked, not unbanked, right? You want businesses in the system, not out of the system. This is why, in the anti-terrorism area, hawalas are a bad thing. Hawalas are an ancient money-transmitting uh, system used in the Middle East, right? Very hard to track. So um, they want to be in the system. They want, they want people in the system. They want businesses in the system. They want your uh, you know, banks to re- re- you know make the reports that they're supposed to make under the law. So I think that that is going to be, uh, because look, if that memo were rescinded, that would be a bombshell, right? Cole Memo and others, we're gonna see how that shakes out. That would be a major problem. So So, I don't expect it uh, right away. Again, they're studying it and they tell me they have no uh, immediate plans to make any changes in that regard. What's the translation of that though for
0: for someone who's Mm -hmm. experienced when you have, we're studying it, we have no immediate plans. Do you go back and say, they have no clue what they're gonna do. Is, is it gonna be five years, 10 years? I know Melissa says, you guys don't like to talk about time frames, but how long are we talking about?
2: Well, it may, may be indefinite, it's government, right? <laughs> yeah. um, look, I, this is one area where they know that if they re- rescind that guidance, you know, all hell would break loose, right? I would, I would predict that the banks, and Melissa can correct me if I'm wrong, she's closer to it than I am, but the banks in Colorado would get very nervous very quickly if that guidance were rescinded.
3: So we have essentially one credit union that's banking about $100 million a month in Colorado right now, Um, and that's come online in the last several years. And the fact of the matter is, the federal government is in her operation all the time. They have audits almost every week. They have offices that they come in and they just kind of sit there and look at her books. Um, and the fact of the matter is she's helping them to the point earlier, if there was ever a case to be brought, that's where all the evidence is. Um, but more importantly, she's taken all that cash off the streets in Colorado, and I think there is a federal uh, law enforcement benefit to that, right? And they've essentially said that. So. If that FinCEN guidance were pulled, yes, that would cause all kinds of heartburn throughout Colorado's marketplace. Um, This is the model that Hawaii, I think, is likely to adopt. So the credit union model has been a little bit of an easier sell, so to speak, in terms of getting those owners to engage. You know, In a perfect world, you'd have Wells Fargo and JP Morgan and all these large banks banking the money, and I think the bottom line is they want to, they just can't. Um, And until there's some federal guidance um, to allow them, and essentially a law change, Um, we're kind of stuck with this in-between credit union model.
0: What happened in Colorado? I mean, uh, there's gaming in Colorado too. What what happened in Colorado vis-a-vis, Rick alluded to the Gaming Control Board here, which came down with a
3: very stern ruling on this. What happened in Colorado? Mm -hmm. Same thing. Um, You're separate and you cannot commingle. Um, the ownership can't be the same, the licensing structure can't be the same. In Colorado, and I believe here as well, you can't even consume alcohol in a marijuana location and vice versa. So if you have a liquor license, you can't have any marijuana on premise, legal or illegal. Uh, the gaming has essentially been the same rollout, and um, we don't see any change in that. Our Department of Revenue oversees marijuana, alcohol, and gaming, uh, and liquor um, uh, enforcement altogether, and they're never going to commingle, at least not anytime soon.
0: You think that's right, Rick, here? You know, the history of the gaming industry here is that they're, that. oh, this is horrible. We can't We can't have anything to do with this until they say, oh, wait a second. We can make some money on this. Maybe we should uh, get, get, get involved in this. To me, that would seem the trajectory this goes eventually.
1: Well, I, I think it's going to take some time to get there because the other thing that's firmly rooted in gaming regulation here is almost a piousness about some of these things because we always have to remain... I mean, if you go way back into the 60s and whatever, when we were the only legalized gaming in the country, it was very important, given the mob influence and outside influences, that we be perceived as cleaner than the hounds. The gold
0: standard.
1: The gold standard. And thus, I think there's a, you're right, there's a lot of, oh, my God, we cannot have people running gaming institutions and being involved in this as well. And something
0: as clean as gaming mixing with something as right, dirty right, as pot. Right. Yes. The irony I of that. I get it, I get it.
1: But yes, it'll, it'll eventually, um, that outrage will diminish, and uh, suddenly it'll be run of the mill and, and perfectly okay.
2: I, I can make one comment about, look, the gaming industry worked very hard um, over the years, legitimizing itself. Um, there's a member, there's a casino executive who sits on something called the uh, BSAAG, the Bank Secrecy Act Advisory Group at FinCEN, right? The uh, casinos uh, uh, take a lot of cash. They are heavily regulated by the federal government. Um, they work really hard at AML compliance, um, but there are always risks, risks, and FinCEN is continuously looking at them. So I think at least in the short term, they're gonna be you know, very wary of that. And I think the regulators that basically camp out in their uh, back offices are gonna be looking over their shoulders.
3: Can I add some color to that? Of course. So our firm represents a fair amount of um, gaming entities. And one of the questions was if I have someone comes in who's a big um, fancy and very important customer, patron of ours, and they have a duffel bag of cash that smells like marijuana, what do I do with it? And it's a very legitimate question. And our answer has generally been, well, you can take the money, but you're more likely than not should file a SAR or do whatever it is that your compliance guidelines would tell you. So we kind of thought that was the, the easy answer, so to speak. A couple of days later, we get another call that says, hey, um, we have a duffel bag full of cash now, but it smells like fabric softener. What do I do with that? <laughs> And you know, this is really, we always say, you can't make it up, right? Because, well, if it smells too good, then why was it cleaned, right? right. And, and then it kind of goes on. So the gaming institutions, I think you're seeing the practical implication. You know, Do I take the money? Do I not? Can I allow smoking of all kinds on my gaming premise? The answer is no can we allow cigarettes, so it will evolve. I think you will see co-mingled ownership in time. It's just, it's not gonna happen anytime soon. It may quite frankly happen in Canada a lot quicker than it happens here. Look, I've
2: heard a couple anecdotes. People going through a McCarran with a lot of cash and TSA saying, where'd you get the cash? And the response was, I want it at XYZ casino. TSA calls up XYZ casino. They said, no, we don't have any record of that. Shocking.
0: Uh, a few more minutes, let's talk about one other legal issue, and I'm wondering, any of you can jump in on this, and that's the issue that's talked about in terms of driving uh, wh- wh- while uh, uh, having smoked marijuana, much different than alcohol, obviously, the, the science is not nearly as, as evolved. I hear Tick Sagerblum out there all, all the time talking about, oh, it's totally different, uh, you can smoke and you can drive and all that stuff. Where is that all going, do you all think?
3: Well, I'll start with that one. Um, so Colorado struggled with it, to be quite frank. There's not a, there's no breathalyzer for marijuana, um, and even if there were, it doesn't gauge impairment in the way that um, alcohol right. can be determined. There's no .08 standard. Um, a couple years ago, we worked with the governor's office and some uh, municipal and county officials and law enforcement to pass the nanogram inference, the five nanogram inference limit in Colorado, which I can tell you hasn't really been used very much. It's on the books. Um, if you are... Uh, suspected of driving under the influence and pulled over by law enforcement. It requires a blood test. Most people don't allow a blood test, so they'll, they'll um, object to it. Um, if the blood is drawn, it's then processed and then held till essentially a jury trial. At the very end of it, a jury can infer that you were impaired if your blood alcohol or your blood limit for THC is above five nanograms. Um, the real answer is the person or the company that comes up with a roadside sobriety test that actually determines impairment is the next multi-billionaire. Um, it doesn't exist right now. And the other practical problem is a lot of law enforcement paperwork doesn't indicate differences between drugs. It simply as drugs or alcohol. There's not a lot of data, there's not a lot of tracking ability to say, well, it was marijuana versus it was an opioid versus it was something else. There's really no way to know that. Um, so the data is not there. So the short answer is, it's really law enforcement discretion. Um, there are some visual tests that law enforcement can do to try and determine impairment, but again, it's really subjective on how they determine what the impairment is caused by.
0: Rick, you have any thoughts on that?
1: You know, it's not an area I do much of here anymore. But back in my army days, I remember—you uh, know—I I was a defense counsel representing kids in the infantry division, and you know that every other Article 15 non-judicial punishment had something to do with marijuana. And at that time, they thought they had this great test, which uh, we were always able to—if to, if we went to court martial with it, there were always ways to call into question uh, what was going on, in a lot of times the proof that the command would offer would be something like well i smelled it in his clothes and we saw you know a green substance under his mattress and kind of a circumstantial case so those are a lot harder to make and and i think you're right whoever comes up with the test is going to be the next hero for
0: let's let's wrap up this discussion with what i think is a common thread that, that all of you have touched on which is you know how different like when you were US Attorney, uh, uh, Rick, uh, how different marijuana is perceived today than it was then. And all of these things essentially are going to take that amorphous time that everyone. Uh, has talked about finding a solution to the driving while impaired find getting gaming and to, to be accepted banking to be accepted schedule one maybe to be changed in the way that you referred to it's all it's is all just it it's it seems like it's not happening fast enough maybe for some of the folks out here but it's going to happen It's just that we just it, it's that evolution that we just can't see the endpoint yet right
1: it's gonna be like november nineteen eighty nine when the berlin wall suddenly collapsed because for months, if anybody now you read a history of that period, you can see all the signals you know, years before that. It's kind of the same thing here. The idea, twenty-five, well more than that now, back in nineteen ninety when you know that was my responsibility, the idea that it would ever be legal, it's just no. You know, you knew you were always going to have a caseload of three or four big marijuana importers, and and it, you know, the the notion was very far fetched, and I don't know that it happened in any kind of a tipping point yet, but the signs are all out there, and, it, and it's perhaps generational, maybe it's uh, uh, greater awareness. I, th- I think the, the Trojan horse has been medical marijuana, because all of us know somebody who has benefited, you know, that uh, if they had glaucoma or, or cancer or whatever, and as a result, it softens everybody, even Republicans, it softens your... Uh, a perception of, well, is it really all that bad if it can help people? And that kind of an undercurrent makes a lot of these other notions that 30 years ago would have been completely uh, unforeseeable seem a little more appealing.
2: Did you know that during um, Prohibition, Augustus Bush, um, the CN of the Budweiser company, uh, argued to every legislator that he could get his hand on and the president that uh, beer was medicinal and had medicinal properties. I mean, that was that was part of. Uh, That's been
0: proven, has it not?
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it has. Um, look, I know we're wrapping up. I'd have I give one uh, piece of advice uh, to this group uh, because a lot of people, you know, are spending a, quite a lot of time uh, complaining about Jeff Sessions uh, and the current Justice Department. What I would say is. Um, uh, get the law changed. Write your letters to your members of Congress, to your senators, get the law changed. I actually think Jeff Sessions is the wrong target. What he would tell you is that he's fulfilling the president's responsibility in Article One of the Constitution that the president's job is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, not to rewrite the law, not to amend the law, not to change the law, but to execute the law. That means enforce the law. So this is an opportunity. To go to Capitol Hill and talk to your members of Congress to do what you want them to do, which is change the law. Melissa, I'll give you the final word. You mentioned
0: earlier 30 states uh, and and eight states. Is it just, you think the tipping point
3: is when we get 40 and 15? When, When is the tipping point? I don't know that it's a number, but it certainly matters what the members of Congress, what their makeup is. When there are certain members in power whose states have come online with medical or recreational, you're going to see a lot more deference given to that state law, and therefore a lot more policy outcomes based on that leadership. Um, and the power that those leaders hold. Um, I do think it's gonna happen in just one day where all of this pressure has been mounting, the lobbying efforts are underway, the educational campaign, most importantly, has been happening. There are so many misperceptions about legal marijuana that have to be uh, aligned before you can even make the policy argument, and, and there's a lot of teams, including ours, that are doing that. Um, But I can tell you the perception is changing. There is a lot less anger around the issue. There's a lot more excitement on the medical side of the issue. Quite frankly, there's equal excitement on the recreational side. People come to Colorado and Nevada as well for the tourism component of using a recreational product that's been illegal for so long. So all of that, particularly the economic impact, is mounting. Um, And it's one of those things where one day it'll be the perfect timing to make a deal, and all of a sudden you'll see a headline that there was a deal on marijuana. And I'll tell you um, when we were working on the medical regs. This great, this great story. Um, it was every, every state uh, throughout their session, You know, different interest groups have a lobby day at the Capitol. And this particular day, during one of the biggest medical marijuana hearings also happened to be law enforcement day at the Capitol. <laughs> so you had hundreds of marijuana advocates in a very large, it's called the Supreme Court chambers, the old Supreme Court chambers, filled to the brim at the state Capitol. And then you had uniformed law enforcement officers walking around as well. And it also happened to be an emphasis on canine appreciation day. So we're all standing in the lobby and the elevator's open and all these German shepherds come out and they're pointing and barking and right, they're running to the committee hearing, right? And they have found the holy grail of marijuana, like this is their big day, like I did it. And the law enforcement officers run after them, they catch them, they regain control of them. And we were all kind of standing around watching this unfold and the cops look up at us and they said, you know they just don't understand what elections are. And we all had a really good laugh. And I think that is kind of the point that this is changing and there will be change at the federal level at some point.
0: Melissa Rick, thanks so much for coming. Let's give this great panel a round of applause. Thanks for joining us on Indy Matters this week. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. We'll talk to you next week.